Hey everyone, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to share what I think is a pretty exciting announcement. We are opening up our rival AMP community. So some of you listening have been part of AMP from the beginning of the company. It has been our small, very small friends and family community around Rival where we post updates, ask for feedback, kind of share what's going on in the business. But actually we think there's a lot more potential as we've grown, as our community has grown, as we've met more of you to actually build and scale a proper community within Rival Amp. So what Rival Amp is going to be is it's going to be a community for challenger marketers on WhatsApp. We're going to share ideas and observations from the challenger marketing world that we see and ask everyone to contribute to that. Share about challenger brands, marketing news, industry events, job opportunities, ask for feedback and input, use each other as a sounding board. We think it's going to be really great. So if you are interested in joining and are not already a member, please either reach out to me if you know me or go on over to our website, wearerival.com, and you can apply from there. This is free but we do want to make sure that we're adding people that are really interested and can really add value. That's it. On to the episode. They were almost a constant and always on uh, promise and of uh, deals, you know, promotions. Everything with 20, 30, 40, 50% at some point, which I think just creates a culture of addicts. Uh, you know, like it's people become addicted to deals and this is what they, they, they come to expect, which... Uh, is the worst thing that you can do because now that we have this market correction and everybody's talking about profitability, well, you need to improve your margins, be it contribution margins per store, per basket, be it, uh, you know, uh, making sure that you can't necessarily offer free delivery all the time because you have to cover the cost of your logistical arm of the company. So all of these different things, right, um, we don't do. We, we, we have one obsession. It's not speed. We know that speed is important, but our obsession is quality. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Diego Tarek de Aristegui. I apologize. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but fascinating conversation Nonetheless, Diego is the CMO of Mano, which is one of the fastest growing quick commerce players in Africa right now. So it's a category, and I mentioned this, that I've been personally fascinated by here in the UK, where you've got so many brands, so much money being spent in the space. So it's, it's really interesting to hear Diego's perspective being the CMO of one of these businesses and also how they're approaching growth and doing things very differently. Um, I love I love just kind of hearing about what it's like to be the CMO of a business like that and how much change and growth and, and energy there is in the industry right now. Uh, I really liked how he talked about this kind of career-defining moment for him. He called it life-changing, actually, after spending some time in the agency world and with big brands going back and getting an MBA and why he thinks that type of commercial, fundamental business experience and understanding is so important. For marketers, and then the main focus of the conversation is how Mano is approaching growth, uh, and it's all about sustainable growth. So it's very different from how a lot of the other brands and businesses in this category are approaching things. I think it's very refreshing, and also gives them a very sharp point of difference in a very crowded industry. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Diego Tarek, CMO of Mano. Hey, Diego, thanks so much for joining me. How are things down in Madrid? 
Thank you, Eric. I'm very, very happy to be here. Well, Madrid, as you can see, a bit warmer than perhaps at your end, uh, but a bit cold, I think. I think just the, the house is pretty warmed up. Very happy to be. I mean, Madrid can't complain. You know? I love it down there. I've got my mid-January in London set up here with my scarf and my hot tea for those that are only listening and not watching. All right, uh, Diego, I'm really excited about this conversation. I think what you're doing with Mano, one, we haven't had too many guests who are building businesses and brands in Africa on the show yet. We did have... Um, Masala Phillips, who's the CMO of Old Mutual on recently, which was interesting. We've done some work with them actually down in South Africa, but really curious just to hear more about what's going on in your category on the African continent. Um, and then also I, I love, you know, in our prep call, uh, which was a couple months ago now, but um, I was fascinated just by kind of the very challenger approach. It, obviously it's a challenger business in the category of quick commerce but also the approach that it seems you and the leadership team are taking to building Mano uh, seems challenger even within the challenger category. Um, so I'm excited to get into it. So could you maybe just give, I would have given a, a brief introduction about you uh, on the, in the, in the pre-recorded intro, but maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, the one to two minute ele elevator pitch of Mano and where you all are at in the journey of building this business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, well, I mean, the best term that can define Mano is quick commerce, right? So today we are we are we are a company that owns the entire value chain of what we do. So we you know source our products, we hold them in our dark stores, we even import uh, products that are not necessarily available within the marks that we have. And um, from the pickers, the you know the the store operators, the the riders, all of all of that crew are actually Mano employees. And I think this is quintessential to our, to our recipe for success because this is, I mean, we, we really want to, to control the quality end-to-end. Uh, -end. And basically what we, what, we, what we do is that anything that can actually fit within a backpack or a box that can fit on you know, the back of a motorcycle will be, will be delivered to a customer's home in, in under 30 minutes. That's pretty much what Mano is today. We're, we, are, we started off um, our first operation in Angola. Um, reason being because the CEO actually lived there for 10 years and he, and the family business of the CEOs is a massive distributor of, uh, and manufacturer of, uh, you know, FMCG products, uh, headquartered in, in Switzerland, you know, they, they have a very intimate understanding of the market. They have a very good contact of networks around the, around the place. So it was, it was intuitive and natural and very logical to start off there, right? In a sense, but perhaps not the most logical place to start a business or a, or a startup in Africa. Uh, people don't think about Angola as your first uh, choice. And then in the second year of operation, which was 2022, we've opened Nigeria, which is obviously um, a key market, a strategic market in Africa, population size, uh, digital readiness, uh, you know, the number of, uh, of youth uh, under the, the age of 30, right? 70% of the total population, which is crazy. And here, We've been seeing really like amazing growth in the two, in the two countries. We've grown triple digits from 2021, 2022 in, two in the two markets. So that's a very good, uh, very good sign. And today we're, we're at the stage where we're really pondering the, the, the big questions, right? Like, and I think it's going to be the theme of our conversation, how to grow sustainably. Like, what do we do next? Like, how do we consolidate where we are? But also, what do we do where we look at for, for expansion? Because we have a big, a big plan of actually, you know, 
being an Africa, Pan-African focused company where we're established in different markets where, where we think that our, uh, you know, our offering is needed. And, and, you know, to the extent that you can share, what's the scale of the business right now? Obviously sounds like it's growing very quickly from the base of where it started. And how does Mano fit into the category of quick commerce within Africa overall? Like what are, who are the competitors? Who's, who's the market leader? Uh, I got a sense of kind of how you, you all are doing things differently, but where do you fit into the overall puzzle right now? Uh, wait, yeah, I mean, today I think that we are definitely no longer a startup. We're a scale-up. Uh, and I think that we we're, we're at a point in time in the company where we're trying to change the mindset that we're in, in a sense. I think that uh, at the beginning, everybody was wearing every possible hat in the company, uh, you know, and, and today we're, tr we're trying to get into a certain... Uh, you know, structure where we actually have pretty pretty defined verticals and we have leaders for every vertical that come with a certain background, a certain experience and can add a certain added value, right? Uh, but we want to re retain, I mean, we, we know that we're not yet this, This uh, we need to re remain um, very much a group of people that can wear different hats, that can come and contribute to different solutions. And I think this is one thing that is part of our, you know, uh, key ingredient for, you know, whatever success, whatever growth we've actually experimented recently. So, and in terms of size of a company, we're definitely today, um, resources wise, a, well, kind of really an SME, right? Small and medium sized company. But um, the the way we, we're, in, the, in the narrative of quick commerce in Africa, we're definitely one of the first players to come in with this business model. So we have, and it's, we're not the first one, but we still have that first mover advantage because it's a state, uh, Nigeria, Angola, you know, Ivory Coast, uh, even South Africa, which are countries in, in, in North Africa, which are countries where you're starting to see players coming in with Talabat. Glovo is a big company based, based out of Barcelona, but, you know, expanding in, in Africa. Um, I think we're, we're very much at an, at an infancy stage when it comes to the actual segment. So we, we, we're developing the market in a sense. We're kind of like educating our customers. Uh, on the benefits uh, of uh, quick commerce. And really there's, there's a very, I would say, um, effortful, but also a bit costly uh, process of educating customers and making them understand that, yeah, you can change your behavior from going to a brick and mortar and retail and a physical retail space and actually start using this. And, and, and I think the biggest barrier is a trust barrier, right? I think not only from, you know, do people feel at ease paying online, but also, uh, I think there's been for a very long time a um, a um, just a relationship of companies overpromising and underdelivering and really like conning people. You know, like I think that the biggest conversation that we're seeing in Africa is, oh, another player that's coming and saying that, yeah, we're going to offer you a, a, a delivery service in under thirty minutes, and we're going to actually deliver uh, food and uh, or groceries in, in pristine condition, or actually hot and not cold, or you know, like somebody else orders a piece of uh, a product and actually gets something totally different, which is, I think there's nightmarish horror stories that people are sharing online and it's becoming a very trendy conversation. So we are at the point in, in time where we're trying to define the codes of what quick commerce and what this industry can actually you know, offer to people. And also not only from a customer point of view, but how a business should behave, right? How do we should behave as a business? Not only how it was our relationship with our customers. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like, um, and when, oh, so I think you, you mentioned the competitors today. Um, we, you, you have a couple of 
regional players that have done interesting things. We have Jumia, I can mention, which is one of the, the biggest. And very recently uh, decided to, to refocus on different things. But uh, we're amongst, uh, from our direct competitors, we're amongst the, the, the only ones that are solely focusing on quick commerce and deciding to really like invest uh, 100% of our time and effort and resources in, that, in, in, in this vertical for the time being. It's a category I've been, I guess, professionally fascinated by. Ironically, as a consumer, I have yet to use a quick commerce service here in London. Um, I don't really know why that is. I actually just want to do it out of curiosity at this point to see what the experience is like. But just um, the explosive growth and also, and I know we're going to get into this in a little bit, talking about how you all are different, but my perceived kind of lack of differentiation, it seems like there's so many, you know, there's so much, particularly above the line advertising from these businesses, so much about couponing and discount to try to get people on board. But I know plenty of people, one of our co-founders may or may not be included in this, who just kind of like goes between the different, you know, the different solutions of GetAir and Gorillas and, you know, all the other ones that exist here in London, because they're all doing different promotions at at a different time. And so we're going to get to that. But the question I want to ask, and I don't know if this is a fair way to ask it because it's so broad, but in a category that like this, that is so new, that's growing so quickly, there's so many players, there's so much that must be changing. And then in the African continent and these markets where it's growing so quickly, there's so much changing. I guess, what's it like to be the CMO of a business like this? And I know, you know, you spent some time in the agency world, you were at Diageo for a while. Um, so I don't know if it's fair to say that this is kind of the first of these types of gigs for you, but I'd just be curious to hear a little bit about what it's like at a high level. And and maybe I'd also be curious to talk about like what a day in the life or a day in the week looks like um, for the CMO of a business like this. No, absolutely. So, you know, I think you're totally right. And in, in, in it, it is, uh, this gig is by, by far the most different and the most... Uh, alternative uh, that I've actually had to, the chance and pleasure, you know, to uh, to embark on. So I've been, for the better part of my life, part of like massive organizations. So PwC, that's kind of already like uh, almost, uh, you know, the size of a country uh, in terms of workforce. Then you had uh, Leo Burnett, part of the publicist group, another, you know, big nation. And then you have Diageo, which is uh, also a, a big machine uh, uh, where, um, you know, a lot of, uh, one can learn fantastic things, but I don't think that people, that they particularly prepare you for um, the roller coaster ride that is, you know, uh, joining not only a startup or a scale-up, but a startup or a scale-up of a totally new industry that is still trying to define itself, right? And so that kind of like, I remember very well when I got... You know, I was I was headhunted by by the head of people and culture there, and I had a conversation with the CEO, which you know we we clicked directly because we you know we we share a lot of uh, uh, different passions. Um, I remember saying, okay, wow, that's kind of like you know great opportunity, but the level the level of risk is massive, you know. Like, and I was just I think it was almost a year ago when I decided to join. I had signed a contract with them, and suddenly you see these headlines by the Financial Times. Wall Street Journal, you know, uh, predicting the the end uh, of quick commerce as a business model, right? And you had comments on, on on LinkedIn, uh, on you know VC forums saying the shittiest business model that has ever been created, 
I turned on like shit. <laughs> what did I just do, right? I'm just joining something that seems to be, uh, you know, a sinking, um, sinking ship, but it actually it's not, you know. And uh, and I was seduced by the fact that the story, the strategy of why Africa. We can perhaps discuss it a bit later, but just mm -hmm. to remain on the topic here is that the story, like the the the, the why we're doing this in Africa, makes total sense. Um, so I think that uh, you know. Uh, being in a in a in a, in a fast growing, uh, you know, category which has been defined by like incredible stories like gorillas that managed to raise and I think it became a billion dollar company, one of the fastest uh, companies to reach a unicorn status. Um, the kind of the reality check that I've had to live with just after joining was that it is today a, a segment because of you know the, the pandemic what happened during the pandemic and the growth rate that we have we'd seen but with 2022 unfolding the way it did right and the massive market corrections that we've seen all tech companies but specifically on quick commerce i think that this this the, the, we just had like uh, me as a cmo the first thing that i had to do right is to understand all right uh an, an industry obsessed by speed right where everything was about you know, under 10 minutes, which meant how do you, you know, what types of investments, what are types of, you know, costs, uh, the, the how you ramp up cost was, you know, dictated by this obsession web with speed. The fact of, you know, uh, being one of the hottest uh, uh, investment uh, opportunities at a certain point in time, you know, where people managed to, you know, raise hundreds of millions of dollars in such a short period of time. All of that was, a, I think, was just a consequence of having, you know, I would say premature mindset or thinking about things in a premature way, right? Just thinking that whatever happened during the pandemic was actually the, the, the this, new, this new normal, where actually what we're seeing is that we need to go back to, our, to, to life pre-COVID with some behavioral changes and some corrections in that sense. So I think that the biggest thing that I had to do joining a company like this is trying to have the right mindset, right? And to sober up. So what I try to do is like, okay, sober up from this obsession with speed, which I think is the wrong obsession, right? It doesn't really matter that much at the end of the day to the customer. And I kind of have the right, the right mindset and try to define not only the marketing strategy, right? And what we, we need to do, but try to define the culture in the company through, that, through a different lens. Uh, and that was, I think, one of the biggest challenges as well. So the second thing is that, yeah, we are at a point in time where we're trying to fight um, the perception, right? And uh, it's exhilarating because I think that's what challenger brands do, right? They either challenge what incumbents are doing. They are challenging a, I don't know, a, a, a questionable behavior, right? Or questionable codes, or even they're challenging perceptions. So I think that uh, one of the things that excites me the most and, you know, my day uh, is basically uh, really uh, involves uh, two different things, right? Like, running the business, helping to run the business, uh, making sure that uh, whatever we need to do and, 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 and really using logical, critical thinking to, to, to take the right decisions and trying to reach those goals in a sustainable way that we need to reach, right? But the second thing is, okay, how do we try to really change that perception and that narrative outside of just what we do, right? So how do we really create a an entire different narrative for the entire category because we know, right, if people see the entire category differently, it's going to benefit us, right? And we want to, we want to champion that, that, uh, you know, that, uh, that objective, that mission.
So I want to dig into that sustainable growth, what that means, how you're doing it. Um, but you mentioned a couple things. I just want to I just want to come back. You mentioned thinking about and trying to have an impact on culture, and also you mentioned running the business as part of what you know you're excited about in this role and what you do. And um, you know, you don't hear that from every CMO, and it sounds like that's more of a priority for you. And I'd just be curious, kind of what that looks like if that was something that you uh, were looking for in a CMO role or has kind of developed just based on the nature of Mano and how the executive team is structured. But, you know, if if you were, I don't know if it's like a formal remit or just what you're passionate about, it sounds like you've got a bit of a focus on the internal culture and actually, you know, maybe not broader business operations, but but how you're thinking about building the business overall, not just within marketing and bringing the product to market. So what does that look like? I mean, yeah, I think it's... Um... Well, well, there's two things, right? I think there's the the, the reality of the business today, right? I think that um, so the, the more each person, let's say, the more the leadership or even each person at the company has the ability to understand the machine as a whole, right? The stronger we're going we're going to be. So I think that's true for any business. I think that um, and especially it, it's a necessity for. Um, companies that are still, you know, building themselves, right? Like perhaps startup scale-ups, whatever you want to call them. So um, we don't have the luxury to have, you know, only specialists. We don't have the luxury to come and say, yeah, we're going to have just somebody that only understands finance or somebody that on only understands marketing, but has absolutely no clue about, you know, business fundamental, has no business acumen, doesn't understand commercial operations, doesn't understand any of these different things. Um, so I think that, this is something that if, and you know, they say, right, uh, at the end of the day, people invest as much as people invest as much in the team that's, you know, working at a startup or a scale up as the actual business model, the product that you're offering, and if not more. So that's something that I've learned. I did an MBA here in Madrid, not, not too long ago. And one of the reasons I did the MBA, and this is perhaps this is more my personal, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it passion, but, uh, I decided to do an MBA because I, I, I remember being at a disadvantage in some conversations in the past, right? When I was at the agency world, um, I learned things from, you know, types of people that were just amazing, right? Like I had really great mentors overall, but we, 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 we felt and you know, that kind of like a, an overall problem of, of, the, of the industry of, you know, the advertising industry is that they seem to be at a disadvantage today when it comes to consultants that have a better understanding of how, you know, a business runs, you know, a business models and it can provide add more value. And now they're getting into the creative realm. So they're buying off, I mean, think that Accenture, or if I'm not mistaken, Accenture bought Droga5. Um, and then David Droga decided that the, the best marriage would be with a big consultancy firm, not necessarily with a, with an advertising or media company, you know, or holding a uh, holding group. So, and I remember being in front of clients, right? And I think you, you discussed it with uh, Aaron North, uh, just, you know, watched your, your podcast, which I found amazing, is that this idea of like feeling a bit uh, powerless because you're, 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 um, yeah. you, you're recommending something, but you're kind of constrained to only the communication part of it, right? Even not perhaps the marketing part of it per se. And then you have, uh, you know, somebody else making a decision. So I, I hated that, uh, you know, not, not being, perhaps it's 
me being a control freak, but I hated not being able to uh, take decisions uh, and and bring to life things that uh, that. Uh, but I also felt that I was at a disadvantage from uh, you know understanding uh, or adding value to to a C-suite or to decision makers, and this is why I decided to do an MBA, which was a life-changing experience. And I, any marketeer that can go into broadening uh, their skill set, either through an MBA or you know going into data science, you know things that are not necessarily um, natural, you know, to the world of marketing or traditional to the world of marketing, I highly recommend it because I think it makes the, the, the entire difference. I, I totally agree. And I think it differentiates you as a candidate, but also allows you to approach the role of the CMO or whatever marketing role you're looking for and take it to be so much broader than just advertising or communications and actually do the role that I think marketing fundamentally should do, which is basically how do you connect the value of your product to the needs of the market as broad as that? And part of that is brand, part of that is comms, part of that is marketing, but it's so much more. And, and actually, you know, I see, I see that a lot. I think the MBA route is interesting and certainly one way to do it. Also, you know, a lot of the people that we've interviewed, you see a lot of them come up through like the big marketing led CPG organizations like the Unilevers and the PNGs, which are basically like an MBA uh, it through how they do things, although a lot of those people go to MBAs as well. But you know, they're running P and Ls. They have holistic responsibilities as brand managers, part of which is marketing. Um, and that's something I've I've really enjoyed about how my career has evolved. You know, coming up in advertising agencies because I always felt that I liked advertising, but what I loved was figuring out how to build and grow a business. And advertising was a way to do that. So when I, you know, with Vayner first had a GM role, and then my last company where I was chief marketing and commercial officer, and now obviously here as CEO of Rival, that's the stuff that I get really passionate about. So I think that's such a good, particularly for, well, I guess really at any stage, but certainly if you're thinking about kind of the next phases of your career, I think getting that experience one way or the other um, is such a good shout. So coming back to the, the main topic, sustainable growth. So let's start with how do you think about either define or just kind of your perspective on sustainable growth and what does that mean for Mano and how you all are thinking about building the business and brand? Yeah, I think, well, um, I think it's important to, well, I think that sustainable growth is always relative, right? So there's never like an absolute uh, a formula or uh, you should be doing this and not that. I think that really it's about who, uh, where you are what stage the company is at, you know, where, where you are as a company, the resources that you have at hand, the type of people that you have at hand, and even very importantly, the state of the market, the environment right, that you're operating in. And we are operating in a very complex, difficult environment, uh, much more tight than it was before, specifically when it comes to, you know, um, access to funding, et cetera. So it kind of forces us to look at, to, I mean, there are decisions that are imposed on us, and then there are decisions that we make, then we take. So I think that today, um, to, to go back to, uh, you know, one of the the codes that other players have been building when money was a plenty um, was that everything was subsidized. You see what I mean? Like um, I think that with people were one, there was a growth strategy that was clearly unsustainable. Right, this kind of like promising. If you if you if you couldn't hit 
10 minutes or under, that would mean failure for some businesses. So that meant to, you had to open an inc very high number of dark stores and strategic locations in urban environments that were simply not, you know, cost effective. It was just rent was, you know, unsustainable. The, the number of staff that you had to actually uh, employ was unsustainable for the actual demand that was happening or the stage of the, you know, the life cycle of that segment or that industry at the time. So I think that uh, that's something that when we look at growth, right, we have a very clear principle. Like we need to make sure that we break even and become profitable somewhere, then we decide to move on, right? Because we never want to leave an operation behind and, you know, uh, at risk or exposed to, you know, not being able to reach what we call autonomy you know, from necessarily having to inject some capital. So if we decide, for example, to expand too fast, that means that we our resources become, you know, more scarce and we can't necessarily attend to uh, a problem somewhere where we know we've been there for a year and a half or two years. You know, we have you know, loyal customers, we have a reputation to preserve, we have a lot of things to, uh, to take care of. Uh, the second thing is, um, I think that... Uh, Unfortunately, the codes that players have been establishing in the market today was beyond the fact that you know speed is 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 the most important uh, you know benefit is the fact that they were almost a constant and always on uh, promise and of uh, deals you know promotions everything was 20 30 40 50 percent at some point which I think just creates a culture of addicts. Uh, you know, like it's people become addicted to deals and this is what they, they, they come to expect, which uh, is the worst thing that you can do because now that we have this market correction and everybody's talking about profitability, well, you need to improve your margins, be it contribution margins per store, per basket, be it, uh, you know, uh, making sure that you can't necessarily offer free delivery all the time because you have to cover the cost of your logistical arm of the company. So all of these different things, right, um, we don't do. We, we, we have one obsession. It's not speed. We know that speed is important, but our obsession is quality. And the fact that our customer has to ha ha deserve a good customer experience and they have to be satisfied through, throughout time, right? Um, so that's kind of like what directs our efforts. And if that means, all right, we need to do less deals because we need to kind of, you know, preserve that perceived value for what we do, right? From one, you know, the actual, the, the, the effort that the rider does and the service that the rider provides and the, you know, this entire operation in the, in the dark store that makes this convenience of delivering something to your doorstep possible. But also the fact that, hey, we're all, we want to offer you good products, imported products, things that you might not necessarily find uh, elsewhere. And uh, there's, a, there's a cost to that. So we understand that sometimes we will be, we'll be able to, you know, when it's justified, you know, when uh, there's, a, the, the, there's an argument, I mean, for, for, for certain type of customers that, uh, you know, we know are extremely loyal, we can, you know, think about these tactics and approaches. But what we try to do is really maintain the quality throughout. And this is our bet to, you know, being able to not lose, you know, reduce our churn, make sure our retention rates are high. And at the end of the day, win that retention more and, you know, uh, um, grow into, uh, into the company that we want to be and expand into the markets where, where we want to expand in. And is that your point of differentiation from a marketing perspective is that what you focus on for positioning and promotion or what is what does the the brand that people see look like if that's kind of the internal way of thinking about it 
Well, precisely, it's uh, we, we we don't talk about uh, not uh, uh, well the conversation that we're having and the conversation that we want to spark with with the community and the stakeholders at large is um, the the fact. I mean, just explain a bit the purpose that we have. We're a purpose-driven company, and I think this is critical. And it's uh, it's kind of elevating the conversation from hey you get the fastest delivery and you get the best prices which I think this is where a lot of the other players were stopping at right and we're trying to elevate the conversation and not talk about these things but talk about a human tension or how do we we are addressing a human tension and we're you know addressing a human truth and what we found and this is something that's very true in in Africa is that good quality service seems to be reserved for the privileged only. So you're in a, in, a, in a very chaotic environment where infrastructure is, is poor and the vast majority of the population really goes through hell to get their groceries. It's not like in Europe uh, where you have metros, public transportation, buses, uh, electric bikes, perfectly you know, cemented roads. There's a, there's a brick and mortar every five minutes. So you have options. It's, you know, no, I think there if somebody necessarily wants to get... Uh, goods to sustain their week for their families, they go on a mission, you know, it's a quest and then they come back. And so definitely not pleasurable there. So um, what we're saying is that, well, we want to fight that monster, you know, and, and we want to fight the monster that so far, right, the good, good quality was only reserved for the privileged and you, you have to have money to be able to have a chauffeur, send something to the, to the supermarkets, get it back or you know, get access to like very expensive premium locations that provide you the best products and the best service, but that's only like 10% or 5% of the population that can afford it. So we went from that tension and we created our, our, um, uh, our belief and our core belief is that we believe that, um, you know, the type of service that makes life better or that improves quality of life should be for everyone. And that's how, that's how we think about the business. So everything that we do, right, from a culture creation internally, like how people should think about the relationship with customers and what we're doing as a company, to the communication that we're doing and to the actual price points and everything that we're doing, everything from, you know, commercial, from operations, from customer, from after-sales services, everything that we do is directed and influenced by this idea of, we believe that the type of service that makes life better or improves quality of life should be for everyone. So we don't discriminate. Uh, location, economic background, social, whatever, in that sense. And I think that this is, this is where we want, this is how we differentiate ourselves. That's our point of difference. So I know, I know we're coming up on time. I, I think the, um, the last big question that I'd like to ask you, and then we can wrap up, is, you know, there's obviously a balance between long-term and short-term. And I think it's interesting, you haven't once, once mentioned long-term as a substitute for sustainable. And I don't think that it has to be. I think particularly within this category, being sustainable, focusing on quality, this kind of purpose-led mission of bringing people the access and opportunity and experience that before was reserved for the few. That's not, that's not only a long-term thing. That's also short-term helps you stand out. At the same time, you know, you're venture-backed. You obviously have targets and you know growth objectives and things like that. So, um, trying to think of like a sharp way to ask this question, but I guess how do you balance those things of wanting to focus more on you know what I would say maybe is the healthier, uh, more purpose-led, sustainable way of doing things, 
versus the commercial realities of being in business and particularly a VC-backed business in an industry that's so um, aggressive right now? Uh, absolutely. I think this is where, well, the, the context is very important, right? I think that we cannot have the same expectations today that we had perhaps before. So there's there's a very different type of conversation that's happening in the boardroom. There's a very different type of conversation that's happening outside the boardroom. So I think that people are just looking at things and using a different language uh, than before. So it kind of today makes, what I'm trying to say is that there's a bit more realism, you know, overall. I think that people are becoming a bit more realistic and they're going back to the fundamentals like, oh, uh, you know, not becoming unicorn in, in, in 16 months is okay. You know what I mean? That's not, I mean, what you're here is like, what you, you want to create a, a, a sustainable, I mean, what we mean sustainable is that it can sustain itself. So it has to be able to generate more profit, so more revenue, more profit than, than cost at the end of the day. And that's what we're, we're uh, that's, the converse, that's the big conversation we're having today. But secondly, I think that if we need to today, you know, really pay attention and at our phase, at our stage is unit economics. I think that we need to get really granular and look at the business in a very granular, good granular way. So how is our, you know, uh, from everything that we do, from performance marketing to you know the the the, the promotions that we do on on certain categories, the decisions that we take, uh, you know, from a from an operations point of view, all of these different things are really just a a consequence of very clear uh, KPIs at the unit economic level. So if these are in the green, that's okay because that is clearly a statement that the what well, business is healthy, the operation is healthy, we might not be at a stage or we might not be at a stage right now where, you know, we're generating enough excess cash to be able to expand two, three countries at the moment. But that's, that's I mean, again, we should be okay with that at the end of the day. As long as the unit economics are, are, are good, as long as we're able to make sure that we're, whatever we're doing, we're doing well, we're not compromising on the fundamentals, I think this is where you gain the respect of uh, of your investors and, uh, and 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 the boardroom, and I think the company as a whole. All right, Diego, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much uh, for making the time and being here. Fascinating conversation, and I know our audience will be very interested in it as well. Um, two quick questions, because actually I realized I forgot to ask you the icebreaker <laughs> question in the beginning. Yeah. So let's do that first. I was waiting for those. What is one? What is a uh, a challenger brand that you are particularly curious about or passionate about? Right now, so I'm gonna be, uh, you know, it, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna go for one of the big ones, uh, and that's it's a very popular one. It's Nike. Um, so I think that um, you know, uh, despite the size and scale of Nike today, they're still a challenger brand. They still are challenging conventions. They're still are challenging the status quo, and they're doing it in such a consistent manner. You have a lot of big companies, I think Adidas, if you look about it, you felt that they changed their purpose 15, 20 times over their tenure. Well, Nike has been true to, you know, turning every man into an athlete. And I think the evolution, while remaining consistent, they've done something beautiful, is that they've been able to, you know, reinterpret and help as well be, they were part of the popular conversation at every point in time. Right, they were the first one to say you don't need to be a professional to be an athlete, and then they went into you know they they were first ones to actually uh, celebrate not only uh, you know Michael Jordan etc. but the average Joe, and then now with the last campaign Dream Crazy, they've they, they I think they've evolved from championing athleticism to you know inspiring people to become champions of the human race, which is amazing, right? And I think that 
taking a stand specifically in a world where there's so much noise and so much action, you know, so much chatter happening from a certain side of uh, of the aisle that having a brand like Nike coming and balancing that conversation and saying, you know what, no, we, we stand for something that we think is correct and right, it's just beautiful. One of my favorite business quotes is from Phil Knight, the, uh, the, the founder of Nike, and, and it says that the best way to stay number one is to act like a number two. So I think that challenger ethos has been within Nike since the very beginning. All right, actual last question now, Diego. Uh, what is one thing that people should do differently after listening to this conversation today? Um, so, I don't know. I think, I, you know, I, I, I love to read. I, I would suggest a book, which is called Range. Uh, and it just uh, makes the case for, you know, having more generalists in, uh, in the world today. Because I think as a society and as a species, we're obsessed with specialists. You know, we're, we're obsessed with Mozart, you know, these kind of prodigies that from two years old, they've done only one thing and they're just brilliant at it. And I think that as a, as a, as a human race, I think we're much more, we're, we're engineered to be generalists, right? And the more you can be a generalist, I think this is where the more creative you can become, the more value you can add. Um, so that's, that's uh, if you have to read one book, read Range and, um, and yeah, more generalists, please. I second that recommendation. It's a good book. All right, Diego, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope to hope to meet you in person in Madrid at some point soon. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Take care. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.